we're on Hollywood Boulevard. We are. We are driving. And while I am not under the influence, I may start feeling lightheaded. Uh, As we record this, it is Yom Kippur, and I have begun fasting. Uh, Whether you guys listen to our other podcast, and we hope you do, Back on the Block, um, it's worth maybe checking out the first five or ten minutes because we talk a lot about Yom Kippur and what it's like to have been a Jew growing up here and in Virginia and some of the encounters the both Karen stuff. and I had in uh, <laughs> dealing with people in various stages of um, knowing what uh, Jews do. Um, so I do encourage, even if it's just the first the, the first part of that podcast, give what it, give it a listen. What do Jews do? <laughs> well, you won't find out here. I'm going to direct you elsewhere. What, what do, do Jews, Jews do? do? <laughs> Perhaps an age-old question. All right. Well, actually, sort of, not really. It's kind of a leap. Um, what do <laughs> Jews you, do? Are you going to say, let's say, Leopoldstadt on Broadway answers that question? Well, it's funny because I was going to segue into something else. And then I thought, though, there is a clear segue to Leopoldstadt. But since you have said it, I... Um, I might as well start talking about the Broadway show that I saw just a couple days ago. One of the first plays um, to open on Broadway this season. So is it all that in a bag of chips? Like everyone? I saying? mean, it's like the chips. Okay. Maybe not all that. Here, it's a Tom Stoppard show. And in some ways, it's a pretty massive deal. It's an Olivier winning play. It was on uh, the West End just before the pandemic. Um, Tom Stoppard, one of the most seasoned and decorated of our living playwrights, um, has, has written a show that spans about five, five and a half decades in the m- multiple generations of uh, of uh, of a family living in Vienna. And it starts at the tail end of the 19th century and it goes all the way through 1955. So, you know, it- Epic, I would call it, it epic. It bookends. Right? I would in, in many ways. It has an enormous cast. Um, and I think it covers maybe up to four generations of this family. Uh, and it's a two and like two hour and maybe 15, 20 minute show, maybe two fifteen, uh, with no intermission. Um, so yeah, it's canvas is large. It, the net that it, it casts is pretty huge. Um, but it doesn't feel like an epic play. It doesn't feel like a bloated play. It's a very tautly written, fast moving show. Um, you know, like I would call, I don't know, Angels in America is an epic play. Or okay. maybe even like Long Day's Journey into Night is an epic play because it's seeking to do something really huge. This has an enormous cast and it covers a capital letter like historic subject um because you know we can see as an audience what the cast can't know which is the rise of the third reich which is hitler the holocaust Mm -hmm. what they're going to lose it this is a family that includes jews and converted catholics who have all to some degree kind of assimilated into life of uh, turn of the century Vienna and then what happens with their family. But it's in some ways it's a show that would work better as a film because, because it's, and I, I like, I hate to be that guy who says it. It's really hard to tell 
all the characters apart from one another. Especially since there isn't a lot of star casting and some of the characters are, or the actors are double cast. They're playing different characters of different ages and different generations from scene to scene. Um, So, so a lot of the characters themselves are undeveloped. They are more two-dimensional, except for like a couple of the key characters that we're really meant to empathize with. But yes, so we see they, they start, you know, they, they sort of live very successfully and they have a a gorgeous home that is full of wealth. Um, There are multiple siblings and then we start to see their descendants. So then we see, you know, the, the moms, dads, aunts, uncles become the grandparent figures, the great aunt, great uncle figures. And then the little babies start to become um, the adults. They start having kids. We see them 1899, 1900, 1924, 1935. Um, and it's really just to prepare us to get to know this family as best as we can. We can only get to know them so well. Only so many of them really are, um, like, have pronounced storylines. The 1924 scene almost plays like a like a broad comedy, a farce of people walking in and out of rooms and talking about, you know, like it's a character's bris is the occasion. Um, it's really just to see them like sort of flaunt their wealth. And there's, I don't want to say a wanton disregard um, for anything else because they're not, they're not really wanton. They're just living a privileged life. Right. The scene that really matters is the one in 1938, which has, the characters, some of whom are older um, at this point, um, all in an apartment that is, or in a, a home that we've seen many times that is no longer fastidiously decorated. It's in disarray. And they're all in danger because this is the beginning of what we now know as Kristallnacht. Right. Um, so, so it's a show that's about what happens to this family as they get closer and closer to the Holocaust and then a bit of what's left. But I don't think it's an elegantly written show. Um, it's, it's manipulative because we know, I mean, the horrors of the Holocaust, we know what awaits them, but it doesn't arrive at a new angle. I think there's a lot that could have been said about what it is to have assimilated in the late 19 the late 1800s, the late 19th century, what that asked of the family, why some were more willing to do it than others. Uh, I think there's something that could be said about looking at it through generations and honoring the value of what the descendants had to sacrifice for those who survive by the end and those who might then carry on in future generations. And none of that is really populating the play at all. It's really almost like, and I'm... I'm going to try and use different words after I say this because I enjoyed the play very much. I just don't think on the merits it is a sophisticated play. It's a little bit like Holocaust porn. Mm. It's a little bit like getting off on the fact that we know these are characters, many of whom will meet terrible, tragic, undeserved fates. um, And that's doing the work of the play. That, I mean, that will definitely wring tears from people. I think the fact that as many critics uh, wrote as highly as they have about the show is because they were like taken in by 
the 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 element of tragedy. I'm really not spoiling anything because we know the Holocaust happened and we know timing wise this has to affect this Jewish family. But that's basically what's happening in this show. However, it's a beautifully mounted production directed by Patrick Marber, who also did uh, Tom Stoppard's last show, a revival of his travesties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the sound is pristine. The lighting is wonderful. The costume work is very smart. I said there aren't many characters that really get to breathe in front of us, but the ones that do are played by David Krumholtz, who I mostly I know from him. doing TV and film. Yeah, I love him. Um, and he's marvelous, I think, in the show. His his character, who is a very successful businessman who has to make some very um, difficult choices, uh, is it's a role that I think was played by a different actor in London, but was an Olivier winning role. It's a it's a performance that people I do really hope talk about through the season. Um, it's a I know he's done a little bit of LA theater. I don't know if he's ever done Broadway. I don't think he has, certainly not as an adult. Um, and it's great work. Uh, and then someone who's always not just great, but the best thing in every show and one of the best things in every season, mm-hmm. Brandon Uranowitz, uh, who plays a couple of roles in this show, um, is also marvelous, uh, just terrific. Um, Seth Numerick, who was also in Travesties, also plays a pair of roles, very good. Um, Fewer of the female roles get as much attention as those three male roles uh, in this show. You know, it's a tricky thing to say, and it kind of goes back to how I described that show Jasper two weeks back, which is it is not the most elevated of works, but it does at least do the work of a play. You know, it moves from scene to scene, gives you characters and settings, and doesn't just... You like have characters announcing this is who I am and this is how I feel. Um, And that alone (laughs) is a rarity. Um, So I actually really like the play. And like I said, subject matter or not, it's two hours, 15 minutes, no intermission and very easy to sit through, Um, which is not an easy task to pull off. So I like the show very much. If someone wanted to see a dramatic play, I would certainly recommend it to them. Um, But I can't say that it is a smart play. I can't say that, you know, like aesthetically, Tom Stoppard has really like dug deep to to try and do something new along the levels of of artfulness that something like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead or the real thing is like. Right. Um, So a measured success, I guess, is how I'll put it. Okay. Fair enough. But yeah. What do Jews do? I guess a lot of Jews go and see Leopoldstadt. Okay. And hopefully enjoy it. And hopefully, yeah. I mean, there's definitely value in it. So I have a question for you because this is on one of the list of things that you sent me to talk about. That and are, are you ready to move on? I don't. Wanna... I, I am ready. Okay. okay. Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Yeah. Do you like it? Um. Kind of like Leopold Stott. More <laughs> yes than no, but I okay. think there are like fundamental. Um, like issues just with the 
the structure of the show itself. So, okay, let me say these couple of things. I've never read anything by Neil Gaiman. I've never read the graphic novels on which the series on which the Sandman is based. We have watched maybe eight of 10 episodes this season. There's either two or three episodes left. So if there's some other weird, crazy thing that happens in the finale, I haven't gotten to it. And have you seen American Gods? We did. Okay. So here's my thing. I don't think Neil Gaiman is for me, but I can respect him, and I can respect the fact that a lot of people do. Um, I I like The Sandman. It's a pleasurable watch for me, and I love a lot of the actors who are in it, including our lead, Tom Sturridge, who's always fantastic. Um, but I don't really know what the show is doing. Now, did you see this season? I watch part of one episode, but here's the thing. I think Neil Gaiman's overrated. Well, I mean, I guess I do too, because I rate him not for me. (laughs) I've never, ever connected with anything that he's done. I've tried to read him. I've tried to watch American Gods. I've tried to watch, I tried to watch Sandman. I do not see the appeal. And people are nuts about him. Like, they are Oh, huge following. Yeah, tons of love for him. Like, rabid, rabid within the the fandom world. And I tried, and I don't get it. And I can't, and it's not, and no medium of his works for me. Like, none. So I can't even be like, well, I didn't really like the books, but the the TV shows, the series are great. Or, or well, I can't get into this TV series, but I really dig the the graphic novels. Like, no, I nothing, nothing, nothing of his resonates with me. And I'm just like, why, why? Like, I don't understand it. And it's not even like, oh, it's just not for me. Like, it really is me going, I don't understand the appeal here. Well, the thing that I, I, I. I don't think it's for me, but I don't know if I can say anything beyond that is um, I just think like this, the show. Okay. So let me describe it. Or one of us can describe it, but Tom Sturridge essentially plays dreaming. He's Morpheus who is dream. He like embodies the literal concept of dreaming. Um, and he's been held captive as a prisoner. And then he returns to his world and he's, basically trying to get his stuff back. So every episode is kind of a new foe. Um, And, you know, like he goes to hell, you know, he is relatives with the concept of death among other things. Like it's a, it's a crazy kind of thing, but it works to me like the show tales from the crypt did or the show the hitcher did at a pulp level at a b level if it's and the for me it's like we elevate all of our comic book adaptations as top tier storytelling as a level storytelling and i sort of can't recognize it as that and it as such it almost maybe takes itself too seriously and maybe i have a problem with that or not it's not a problem I just disagree with it, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I think I'm trying to be nice and say like, as opposed to, to, to say outright the way you are, that maybe it's not good. I don't know that I am educated enough here to say with conviction, it's not good. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. 
Um, I am going to continue to watch the season for sure. Um, but, but yeah, it reminds me of things I enjoyed as a youth, but that people never took too seriously. And I feel like people take all the Neil Gaiman stuff very seriously. Um, and the other thing is, so the, the first episode really does a disservice to the show. It's duty because it's basically setting up the premise, but that could have happened in like the first 10, 15 minutes of the first episode. And then we should have had the Tom Sturridge character launch back into the world and start his quest and start the structure of every episode, a new foe, but they don't really do that. So you have to get to like the end of episode two to try and figure out what's really going on. Um, Patton Oswalt voices a crow who becomes his companion that also feels like it's something in a different show. Uh, and each episode is an adaptation that combines two separate issues of the series. So there's sort of a dissonance there as well, because they don't all flow together naturally. Right. And then the second half of the season takes us to a different kind of story with a different kind of big bad than the one we follow in episodes two, three, four, and five. So I don't know. I feel like they made some high level boo-boos along the way, but I do think it was smart to cast Tom Sturridge because I think he's really unique and great. Um, and the effects on the show are really good until sometimes they're not. And the CGI turns really bad. So there, I give you a mixed verdict. Okay. Fair enough. I appreciate the mixed verdict. I appreciate it. Um, and when it rains, it pours, because I don't think we've watched anything on Netflix for months and months and months. And then we watched The Sandman, Netflix. <laughs> By the way, if I didn't say that, Netflix. Um, and you know what else I watched on Netflix? You do know, because I sent it on that list. Blonde. Now, the okay. movie Blonde, yes. And is this as bad as they're saying? I have not seen it yet. I actually am not interested. Yeah, it's bad. Here, it's it's guilty of many, many a crime. But the thing that really lets you know it's bad, it's boring as hell. And oh. that's it's, that's like the chief, objectively speaking, universal crime. Like, you take Marilyn Monroe or someone who is based on Marilyn Monroe very, very, very closely, uh, and you give us a movie that is nearly three hours long and is an effing chore to watch. And it is. And that's all we can say. Now, did you yeah. read the jo Joyce Carol Oates book? No, I, I really not. was never, I was really never interested. And, you know, it was adapted once 20 years ago as a CBS movie um, to much less fanfare and to much less controversy. Uh, I have to think that some of my issues with this film uh, stem from the book are things that Joyce Carol Oates created in this story because it's not a straight up biography of Marilyn Monroe but it basically takes all of the issues that an actress like Marilyn Monroe in the 40s and 50s uh, would have encountered but but it's nebulous in a lot of ways the men who often mistreat her come and go with no real explanation her career triumphs are also ill-defined but they're just they just sort of happen. If, uh, 
but um but the thing is and i know that i used one of these two words already on this podcast the film revels in being victim porn yeah that's what i was like reading. so oh so yeah. basically anna de armas who i loved in the movie knives out and who i think does a really good job here but i don't know what she's playing because she's not really given anything concrete to play she's playing someone who at times has to mimic their marilyn monroe persona that we all know extremely well and who's meant to be victimized and abused and cry a lot um and to be sad but we don't get any of the high points from her life um and there were regardless of how her life came to a an early end um but the film is the film kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too in that it wants to take a very modernist approach and say these are all the ways systems institutions the times men specific men hurt abused victimized sodomized attacked Marilyn. They call her the actress, I think, not Marilyn in, in this movie. They don't give her a name? But, uh, no, I, I think that's a Joyce Carol Oates thing. Like, Arthur Miller is called the writer or the playwright, and I think Joe DiMaggio was called the, the player or the baseball player or something. Um, but we all know what's what. Um, so, in a sense, it, it wants to be in... I'll call her Marilyn Monroe. It wants to be in the Marilyn Monroe corner and say, these are all the ways she was used and slighted by the times, by people during this time. But then it also does her dirty because it revels in her victimhood. Right. It, it really is a shrine to all of the ways that this woman hurt. Whether they were real historically or just real for this movie, the movie just wants to see her hurt. It wants to see her bleed. It, it you know it lingers over scenes of her in tears of her losing babies of her longing for a father she never knew uh there's a gross scene uh, of her um you know having a sex with the jfk character um that may or may not be consensual um, but, but the movie itself really seems to just be getting off on, on like, here is a portrait of a woman victimized. We are on her side, but we must show you all the ways this woman can be victimized. But it doesn't even do so in a way that hits you viscerally. It's just so dull and long and boring and slow throughout. Okay. Now it's the the director, the who also adapted this film from the novel, uh, Andrew Dominic. He only makes, I think, long films in the first place. Uh, the film with the longest title in the world, the assassination of Jesse James by whatever by the coward Robert Ford. That movie is also like eight years long, I think. Um, he's like. He's a film. It's a director's film. He's a filmmaker who wants to let you know he knows technique after technique after technique, but he's not fusing them all in a way that is germane to the story of this woman. You know, either sometimes he's filming in black and white, sometimes he's filming in color. Sometimes the aspect ratio is this, and sometimes it switches to something else. Sometimes the sound is 
really quiet. Sometimes it's a bit louder. There's no rhyme or reason to it. He's just showing off. And so the movie really ends up becoming all about him. You know, what I always said about this film is, if you want to learn about Marilyn Monroe, you won't find out anything new about her from this film. But you'll learn all about the director's bag of trips, tricks when you watch. <laughs> and that's kind of all it is. But it's one long bag of tricks. So if you're interested, I don't know, I know you're not, but uh, anyone who's listening, if you're interested, it's on Netflix. Um, I think Ana de Armas is very effective to the extent that she's given anything to do, which is not much. Um and it's a shame, though I will say she is styled very convincingly to, to resemble um, the real Marilyn Monroe. So so kudos to that uh, sort of transformation. Um, you know, some of the other actors in the film are okay. Like, they're really just showing up to play figments. Like, they're showing up to play concepts that will just end up being another thing that Marilyn gets hurt by or loses or both. Uh, but I will put a small plug in for Adrian Brody, who I think does really well as the Arthur Miller surrogate character. Okay. But yeah, this at uh, one point was a big Oscar contender. I'm not sure if it still is at this point. No, I don't think um, it is. I, uh, I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I didn't have to leave my home to see it. I'm glad I didn't have to spend any extra dollars of my own to see it. I know what it is, and I know it's not very good. Okay. Well, there we have it. Um, a couple quick things before I turn it over to you. Um, I just want to pay tribute to Loretta Lynn, who died at the age of 90 today, and who is, I think, one of the, the great American entertainers of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we haven't recorded since this person passed away, so I also wanted to uh, just quickly praise Louise Fletcher, who is best known for her iconic Oscar-winning work as Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, when I say iconic, I really mean it. I think that is one of the greatest, most important uh, film performances of all time. Um, and if you or anyone likes or loves One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's not Jack Nicholson. It's she who sets the tone and makes that whole movie, I am convinced. And that is a great example of just a character actor plugging away who was given a big chance by a great director in a big movie and just hit it out of the park. Okay. I would agree with that. Um, so over to you. Um, so just quickly want to touch on this. Um podcast i was listening to um but i'm gonna start with a question oh no the pressure have you ever wondered where k-pop and k-drama came from like didn't it feel like there was like this sort of all of a sudden like oh my god like korean entertainment is yeah yeah all of a sudden there was this surge and it was everywhere and i'd never known anything about it before the only thing i'll say is i knew a little bit of like k-horror the Korean okay. horror scene, but that was it. If I'm being honest, that was really it. Well, the 
background, the path to K-drama, K-entertainment, K-pop, etc., is actually really interesting. And the NPR podcast called Throughline has a has an episode, episode number 203, How Korean Culture Went Global. And I highly recommend that our listeners give it a um give that one a listen because it actually is very fascinating and it spans about a century of time in how we ended up with this sort of pop culture i don't know like this wave of pop culture and they have now probably some of the most influential uh influential artists you know pop culture artists in in the world right now and very they, much so rivaling, yeah. rivaling the united states which is you know and 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 potential have potential to unseat us as you know sort of like you know the pop culture, yeah the the, the the country the world and i mean to. why shouldn't they really yeah exactly but it was truly fascinating um i i really did not know a lot about Korean history, uh, you know, save for a little bit about the Korean War, but they've had they had like God, like seventy years of occupation, um, you know, between uh, Japan and then dealing and then North Korea and dealing with North Korean uh, dealing with Korean War, and and so they're and. The, and and they also ha were dealing with like when they came out of the Korean War, they were then dealing with like a dictatorship. But the dictator, I, I can't remember his name, was really sort of focused very narrowly on getting Korea to become a world power. And so economically. And so it was just a super interesting way to trace how these artistic movements happened and how they don't happen in a void. And uh, I think, yeah. and I think that we have this sort of assumption that these things happen in a void, right? Like we just like, have because movies. until we know, because until we hear about it, it just wasn't anything. Right. 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 But, but it, but there, but it, you know, and this is something that I always try and like explain to my clients, why it's like really important that we know what's going on in politics what's going on in in the news cycle what's going on because all of these things eventually inform and it might take more than a year two years 10 yeah. years in the case yeah. of you know uh, south korea it took practically 100 um but you sort of see ah now i understand how this happened like for example like one example is during this sort of dictatorship i think it, the weird thing my only issue with the podcast is they weren't really great about dates mm. so uh, you know telling explaining like when this was happening um so it's a little bit jumbled but i'm assuming this was in the 70s um during this dictatorship there was a curfew and so people would go out to bars and just stay there all night because it, because of the curfew because they couldn't leave and so that's actually how korean nightlife oh. evolved and oh. they actually ended up having a really rich nightlife because of this curfew that was set on them and they would just like roll on home at you know six o'clock in the morning or whenever the the curfew lifted but that is how their nightlife got established you know so it's like these there are these like these little things right um, and eventually, and and sort of like part of the push of like you know, they became like electronic giants with 
VCRs mm-hmm. and, you know, and part of the push then eventually became, well, we want to export culture and, um, and how do we do that? And so, and so this is all, so the industry was kind of, kind of like climbing a ladder it, that I guess is the best way that I can describe it. Sure. Sure. Is, you know, the, the, the K-pop, K drama, et cetera. I don't know if it's Korean, like Korean, enter- like K entertainment. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. even K beauty, right. Even K beauty, oh, which I yeah, think was very, really interesting very good call. that they tie that in as well. And, um, and also very sort of, um, very interesting criticism of Oprah, which I thought was really hmm. extraordinary. Um, do you remember when, uh, I guess it was in like in the 20, early 2000s or 2010s, um, there was a lot of like news reports about Asian women getting eye surgery. I don't know if you remember that or if you were I'm, even paying I don't, attention. Uh, I mean, it's probably a little of both. I don't think I, I don't think I was aware of that. Okay, so they were getting criticized, and in particular on Oprah, um, for basically saying, well, they were trying to look Western, they were trying to look like white woman, women, and the, the, the person that they interviewed, um, I think she was a professor, was, was talking about how insulting that actually was, because they weren't trying to look like Western women, they were trying to look like the actors in their favorite K-dramas. Right. And so they were like, here, you, you know, Mm. Oprah is saying that we're doing Mm. this to look like white women, but really we just want to look like our favorite actor that's in this K-drama. Um, which I mean, could have been modeled on Western ideals of beauty, but for these, you know, for, for Korean women at the time, they were just, you know, they just wanted to model another Korean actor that they saw. Right. Right. Their, know, their was, conscious choice wasn't yeah. the Western look. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, the, and the fact that, you know, they were sort of, I mean, I don't want to say called it, but they were, they were like called, you know, called on the carpet about it. Like they were really called to task about like, well, hmm. you know, you're trying to look Western and they were sort of saying, well, you know, these women were saying, well, we just, want the surgery because this is like we we want to look like this it's not about looking white yeah so anyway it was just there there was just this very sort of interesting how you know how how you also can misinterpret cultural cues or like cult, these cultural moments um and how it's sort yeah. of easy to misinterpret as well particularly if you don't quite understand the culture um or you're not asking the culture itself like why are you you know wh- right. what is the appeal of this um, anyway, it was really fascinating. And considering how, you know, Korea, uh, South Korea is really becoming a force to be reckoned with in the entertainment industry. Um, Very to, much so, yeah. To learn where the seeds were sown. Yeah, yeah, the roots. I found super, super fascinating. So let me ask, the podcast is called Throughline? It's called Throughline. Is it that is, a regular podcast? And this is one of the... It is a regular podcast. Is, yeah. It's a, And so this aired in September. It's episode 203. So it's one single episode. It's, it's one not. A, it's not like episode. a season or a no. series. It's one episode that aired on the Throughline podcast in September. Gotcha. Yeah. One single episode. And um, it, it's a long one. Uh, I mean, like a little over an hour. But they really get into some really meaty stuff. And like I said, you know, it was a very, very fascinating uh, to hear about this history. And like I said, like I was never taught 
you know, really, you know, the Asian Pacific history in school, you know, we were always taught European no. history. Yeah, exactly. Um, so these were things that I really didn't know about, like the Japanese occupation, and then, you know, moving through the Korean War, moving into then having to sort of like go through this dictatorship, and then what they did to become this sort of economic, you know, to, to be an economic and cultural superpower. And I would say at, at this point, they are a, a cultural superpower. And that was always, <laughs> yes. and that was their goal, you know, and, and I, and to export culture. Yeah. And yeah, you're you know, right. when I think back to the late nineties, I actually worked on a Korean musical that came to Lincoln center. Um, they had applied to be part of the Lincoln center festival. They were not accepted in. And so they just came and did their show at Lincoln center during the, like they rented a space, like right around the festival time they rented, um, uh. Oh God! What's the big, um, the big theater that's there? The the opera, the Met, the Met. The is it the Met? Well, the Met Opera plays out of, but it's like the theater is called something. Is it called the Met? There's what? There's like David Geffen Hall and you know the Vivian Beaumont and it might have been the it might have been Geffen Hall, but it was called something else back then. It wasn't. Oh yeah, it probably was. Um, anyway, I, I remember I was working on this and, and I mean, this is not like this had like cast of thousands and I don't even remember the name of the musical. Um, and it came from Korea and it just was like so expensive and so much money being poured into this. And I remember being told, well, the Korean government was like footing the entire bill. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I didn't really think much of it because we're used to, you know, in London, the the government is subsidizing the arts Mm -hmm. heavily. We don't get that here. So I just assumed it was the same sort of thing where the government subsidizes the arts. You know, it's just what they do. But they were actually, there was actually a real reason why the government, the Korean government was subsidizing that musical. Like now I understand that because in, in that time frame, that was really the period where they really were beginning to ramp up a couple, maybe 10 years later, 15 years later, we had Gangnam style hit yeah. on YouTube, you know? Yeah. So, so you, so when you started like hearing that sort of the broader picture, you can suddenly go, oh, mm-hmm. oh, right. oh, you know, the progression wow. started here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, this is this is why they were here back in 98 or whatever it was at Lincoln Center. And this is what they were trying to do. And now I completely understand uh, or or not completely understand, but I have a, a clearer picture. Yeah, it fills in some of the picture. picture. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I can't say I'm a big k-pop listener but i do love the movies like i'm i am a huge fan of korean film um so so yeah it was just it was it was just really super fascinating stuff and i highly recommend yeah i'm definitely gonna give it a listen now yeah yeah it's it's a good one good yeah thanks for that um tangentially in a few weeks i will probably see the k-pop musical on broadway and i can also report in about that Oh, excellent. Uh, well, listen to this before I will. you see it. Oh, yeah, I will. And I'm, and I'm kind of curious if that changed, if it changed or put something into perspective by listening to this or like, you know, if you were able to like dig something out of this that maybe you think you wouldn't have seen if you hadn't listened to the to the podcast. I will keep all that in mind. Okay. Yeah. Good. Look at me. I'm trying to broaden everybody's horizons. What a service. I know. 
We're servicey. We try. <laughs> All right. I'm I going think to bed. that does it for us. You guys take care. Uh, if you're celebrating, happy Yom Kippur. Uh, we'll be back in a week. If there's stuff you want us to talk about on the boulevard, you know how to find us. Back on the blog, back on the blog pod Blogger. on Facebook. This is me having fasted. Okay, I think it's time to call it a day. You guys, be good. We'll see you next week back on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs>